Hi, I'm Johnson Wagner. Welcome into this Five Clubs conversation. Today I'm joined by my co-host Brendan DeYoung, former college teammate of mine, and we are excited to have Webb Simpson joining us today. Seven-time PGA Tour winner, 2012 U.S. Open champion, 2018 Players Champion. Today's Five Clubs podcast is brought to you by Golf Pride. Golf Pride knows that a grip isn't only a grip. It's the one piece of equipment in your hands on every single shot. You might not know it, but it has a huge impact on your game. In fact, Golf Pride recently conducted a first-of-its-kind study showing the impact of worn versus new grips. It showed that on average, a focus group of adept golfers gained an extra two yards of carry when they played with new grips. So what are you waiting for? Refresh your grips, refresh your game. Visit golfpride.com today to learn more. Golf Pride, respect the grip. And with that, welcome in Webb. Brendan, Webb, thanks so much for joining us today. How you doing? I'm doing good, thanks for having me. Uh, love talking to you guys. and. We got a lot to talk about, I'm sure. Yes, we do. Let's uh, jump right into it. Start off with a little bit of PGA Tour talk. Um, what is your feeling, philosophy on how the PGA Tour's direction is headed right now? Most importantly, in regards to designated events and the structure going forward for next year. I think, you know, Rory McIlroy kind of captured this line and it stuck in my head because at first, Johnson, I was against this idea. I'm a traditionalist. I love how the PGA Tour's kind of always been. Um, sure, we have our majors, our players, we have some bigger events, but it seems like there's always been equal opportunity for guys to get in these events, whereas this at first I thought was just for the elite, for the top, get them paid, get them guaranteed money. But Rory kind of said it this way, that these opportunities is making the PGA Tour the hardest place in the world to play, and these events specifically the hardest events to get into. And so we've created a system where the most elite golfers are competing for a select few events and it's going to make the PJ Tour that much more competitive. And then I thought I can get on board with that to, to highlight not only the PJ Tour but what the PJ Tour talent has to offer for the world to watch. Um, and I've even found myself this year, I haven't been playing as well, but I'm, I've kind of kicked it in the gear of working hard trying to get in these events for next year. And so I think we're going to see, uh, you know, the best players more often getting together, competing. Um, I still am for a cut. I love a, a cut on Friday, um, but we'll see. We'll see what uh, we'll see what time shows us. Yeah, that's basically what I wanted to hear <laughs> you say because I think the the product this year in those few events has been absolutely spectacular. Most recently at the RBC Heritage with that wonderful playoff, Matthew Fitzpatrick, Jordan Spieth. You know, Tiger talked Tuesday in his press conference in the Masters about his event, the Genesis, wanting to have a cut. Mm -hmm. He referenced Jack Nicklaus as well. I would imagine Arnold Palmer would feel the same way about Bay Hill. Do you think that's something that is still in flux, or do you think it's kind of set in stone there'll be no cut? I'd like to think there is still going to be a conversation. I mean, I even told, you know, some, some of the top players, I kind of joked with them. I said, what are you so worried about a cut? You know, when you're uh, a top 20 or 30 player in the world, Typically, you're not thinking about the cut on Friday. You're thinking about trying to get in position to win on Saturday, Sunday. And so um, I certainly think at Arnold Palmer, at Genesis, maybe even at Memorial, having a little bigger field um, to kind of highlight Jack and Arnie and Tiger, 
and also a cut. I think it makes sense. Um, but I think at this point, the conversation's somewhat been paused uh, to really focus on our sponsors getting the money, setting us up for a full year of these $20 million purses. It just it feels like, and we touched on this uh, previously, that a cut is such an important part of professional golf mm -hmm. because regardless of who you are, you watch the best players in the world come Friday afternoon, they're grinding it out mm -hmm. to make that cut, you know, and it, it creates great TV, creates great stories. Um, I would hate to see that go away. I would too. I mean, you guys know this as well as I do. I've been equally as nervous on a Friday trying to make a six-footer birdie one of the last two than trying to have a really good finish Sunday, even in contention, uh, because it does. It, it changes your whole week. It, it, it dictates where you're going to be the next few days getting ready for the next tournament. Um, and we've all had stories where we make the cut on the number, we shoot a low round Saturday early, and all of a sudden Sunday, maybe not have a chance to win, but we got a chance for a top five or ten finish. Um, and I think you're right, Brendan. Like there's, there's, I, I've always thought there should be a designated camera or channel even for the guys who are on the bubble on Friday because every week, there's guys who bogey the last two or birdie the last two who get in, which are great stories to see. Yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> I may have to talk to the guys at PGA Tour Live about having to redirect <laughs> yeah. some of those streams on Friday afternoon. And to harp on it a little bit more, the cuts, like I look at the Waste Management Phoenix Open, you've got a great record there. Uh, do you think that kind of event wants to lose half of their field on a Friday or on a Thursday, Friday, and think about all the revenue they bring in, all the money they donate to charity? Like these are things that I don't think a lot of people are thinking about. I think that tournament, and I'm speaking a little bit, not like I know what I'm talking about, but they pack that house on Friday, and they've got sun up to sundown golf, and and I just think those are the days we're going to lose. And I remember playing in China in the HSBC no-cut event, 74, 75 Friday, I wanted to get out of there right. so bad. And now you're gonna have these guys that are, you know, and I hate to say stuck, they're still playing for a lot of money, but I, I think there's something that gets lost when you're completely out of it after Thursday, Friday, and you're stuck around playing for two more days. I think so, for sure, Johnson. I mean, I think those, those fans on 16, 17 at Phoenix, they don't necessarily care that, I love Scotty Scheffler, think the world of them, but they don't necessarily care that he's coming through. They just want more golfers. They want more people to yell at. They want more people to cheer for or boo. Half the time, they don't know who's playing, right? They don't know who's playing. Yeah, it's yeah. perfect. Um, and I think you'll see that at other events. Uh, young golf fans, sure, they want to see stars, but they want to see golf. And the more golf we can give them, the better. Um, and so that's definitely a problem that we're going to see. And I don't know how the tour is going to tackle that. But, um, you know, to be specific for the listeners, the difference in kind of that, how do we get to the 78 man field versus 100 or 120? Well, I was explained to that 78 and 100 are fairly synonymous with tee times and TV. That wasn't a big difference. So it was either kind of the 75 to 80 versus 120. And at 120, you have to have a cut um, in order to provide kind of the twosome ideal for Saturday, Sunday, TV time, yada, yada. So um, it's a, it's a, Interesting time to be part of that on the PGA Tour, and I'm sitting on the board, so I'm seeing the ins and outs of it. I know you've sat on the board before. Um, there are big decisions to be made. Big decisions, indeed. Uh, you know, I was sitting on the board when we were, Liv was starting up, and it was a conversation that had been happening for five or six years. You know, do you have any, you have any thoughts on what's going on there and the future of that tour? I don't think, I don't think the Live Tour survives. I really don't. I think. Uh, some of the golfers who have gone, uh, I've heard, have expressed strong interest in wanting to come back. Um, I think for some guys, they love it. You know, they're 
toward the end of their career and they're making a big payday, which is, I totally understand that. But I think at the end of the day, most golfers on the PGA Tour are competing to try to win golf tournaments. It is providing their living, but I think what gets them excited, what gets them out of bed in the morning is the idea of improving, getting better, seeing how good they can get against the best players in the world. And I think the Live Tour, they've, for a lot of the guys, they realize, man, there's not that much adrenaline out here. Um, it's not what I used to feel in the PGA Tour. You know, PGA Tour, there's these building blocks. I'm in these lower level events. I want to get to these upper level. I want to get into the majors. I want to qualify for the FedEx Cup. There's all these, I guess, platforms or levels you can get to, whereas live is just, you know, your schedule for the year. And sure, there's a lot of money to compete for, but there's no real accolades that the PGA Tour offers. Yeah, having that, I always described it as a carrot always dangling in front of you playing the PGA Tour, no matter unless you're top 10 in the world, no matter what level you get at, there's always that next step to take. And that's what motivates you to work hard and practice. Yeah, I agree. It's, um, it's what kind of gives you that adrenaline. I think we're all adrenaline junkies and we want to feel those nerves. Um, and, you know, just seeing the viewership and, um, you know, the people attending, I don't think they're getting those same nerves that they have been used to their whole career. Um, I want to touch on the future of this tour. Obviously, there are a lot of good young players coming up. Give me three or four guys to really keep an eye on moving forward, guys that have impressed you that you've played with. Well, it's, it's hard to not say Scotty Scheffler because of what he's done, but I remember before he won, I played with him at uh, the Century Tournament of Champions, and he hadn't won yet. Um, but in 18 holes, I saw him hit every kind of shot. He hit driver, low cut, high draw, he hit everything. and. Um, Brennan, these young guys, they, Scotty was not nervous at all. He didn't look like, he looked like he'd been on tour 15 years. And I've seen that in other guys as well. Uh, played some with Sam Burns, um, who they, they look like they've been out here for a long career and they know what they're doing. Um, another guy maybe who hasn't won yet, um, Maverick McNeely really impresses me. Um, I don't think he really has a weakness. He hasn't won yet, but I think he's one of those guys, he's come close a couple times super professional in all that he does, super aware of his weaknesses and trying to get better. Um, Mavericks really impressed me and I think he'll win at some point really soon. I was kind of expecting you to talk about Cam Young a little bit, fellow Demon Deacon. And you know, obviously you had your last week with your longtime caddy, Paul Tesori at the Valspar Championship. I, I was covering for Golf Central and I, I was thinking you were gonna go out and dominate perfect golf course for you and <laughs> watching you guys off that 18th green, realizing it was your last tournament together. That, I mean, almost brought tears to my eyes in the situation. You both had your families there. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with Paul and how that kind of happened with, with Cam. Yeah, so Paul and I were together 12 and a half years. Um, you know, he was more than a caddy. He was my swing coach, great friend. We stayed together on the road a lot. Um, and you know, Johnson, it was one of those things where I felt like at the end of 2022, kind of in the fall, I was cutting back a little bit. I had battled an injury and I had heard through my agent that Paul had a couple of really great offers to go work for a couple young players. They turned them down. And I'm kind of trying to assess the situation. Yes, I want Paul to caddy for me moving forward, but also want what's best for him. And I felt like, is he saying no because of our friendship or is he saying no because he wants to continue to caddy? So we just started a conversation. Um, and there was only a couple of guys where he told me he would be very interested in going to work for him. Cameron was at the top of his list. And 
Um, Cameron and I talked, and Valspar Week, it just turned out that Wednesday, Paul got the job offer. Paul, you know, we talked a bunch that week. He took the job. So knowing it was our last week, it was a lot of emotions. I hadn't had a good week on tour in a year and a half. And so it was fun to get in contention. I didn't have the best Sunday, but, you know, to finish off with the top 10 with Paul was super emotional. And I honestly wasn't that emotional in the final round until 18, kind of feeling this is our last round together. My family's over there. My wife's crying. His wife's crying. My kids are crying. They're not sure what's going on. They're wondering why did I, f- they call him Boudreaux. They were like, why'd you fire Boudreaux? I'm like, well, I didn't really fire him. Um, but my daughter, Wendy, had the best line in the parking lot. She's crying. She's eight. And she says, uh, Boudreaux, I hope Cameron plays really bad and I hope he fires you. <laughs> <laughs> and then, he, then she said, and my dad will hire you back again. Uh, but no, Paul's in a great situation. They had an awesome first two weeks together. Second at uh, the match play, and I think seventh at Augusta. Um, Paul has hired a new uh, financial advisor in, in the last couple of years. So when this, those two checks came in, the financial advisor didn't know what to do with it because those are his two biggest checks in a long time. <laughs> uh, so I wish them the best. Cameron Young is obviously going to be, I think, a top player for a long time. Um, you know, ball speed up there with Rory. Hits it as good as anyone, and um, yeah, I think him and Paul are going to go on a great run. What do you What do you think Paul is going to bring to that relationship? I, I know you and Paul kind of were a little bit of the catalyst for Cam mm-hmm. bringing in Chad Reynolds, who mm-hmm. I think is a great caddy. But in my perception, Cam's a little bit more of a quiet guy. Like, what is Paul going to be able to get out of him that, mm-hmm. that Chad wasn't able to? Well, I think one of Paul's strengths is kind of verbal, just affirmation. Um, making you feel good about what you're doing and reminding you of that over and over. He did that for me. And I think Cameron, Paul went into match play not knowing a whole lot. I've played practice rounds with Cameron a little bit. But Paul told me through the first couple of days, he realized Cam was struggling with confidence with his putter. Well, Paul watches him putt on the putting green his first two days and basically says he's starting every putt online. He has a great stroke, great fundamentals. He just doesn't read greens that well. Um, and so I think even in a couple of days, Paul – telling him over and over, buddy, your stroke's perfect. You're starting them online. Cameron made putts, a ton of putts that week. Uh, I think that was the best statistical, statistic putting uh, week he's had in a very long time. And I think that only came from Paul affirming, hey, you're doing great. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, keep working on reading the greens better. And I mean, I think you and I have talked about this. Reading greens is a skill. It's, it's a tough skill to get better at. Um, and if Cameron can do that, I think that may be the only missing link in his game is consistently putting well. Um, yeah, he's going to win a lot of times. That's a, that's a lot of confidence in yourself as a caddy to step into a new situation like that and right away insert yourself. Um, obviously, he's very, very good at what he does. Um, I, I, I agree. I think that they're going to have all kinds of success going forward. I mean, I've, I've been out with you and Paul many, many times, and he's obviously very, very good at what he does on the back. He is. I think he's at the point where he's 51, and he realizes he doesn't have a ton of time to caddy, and so he's not going to waste time by holding his thoughts back. Um, I think most people know him and realize he doesn't have a filter. <laughs> Sometimes that's jumped up and, and it's bit him, but... For the most part, I think it serves him well because as a player, I always knew what he was thinking because I knew he would tell me and be honest with me. Um, And sometimes it was hard. It was tough conversations to hear his feedback. But also I appreciate it because I knew that this is what he thinks. This is how I need to get better. 
and I can't take offense to that because he's just trying to get us to play better, you know, more consistently. Because there's a lot of guys that wouldn't be as accepting of that, though. There's a lot of guys that oh, yeah. like you. <laughs> well, a lot of other guys too. But. Well, I remember 2010. I had just gotten split up with Stephen Hale, Pepsi, and, and I hired Matt Hauser for a little three-week trial, and it was New Orleans, and Matt gets me in the bunker on the practice round. We're hitting some shots, and he looks at me, and he's like, dude, your bunker game is terrible, and I was taken aback by it, but, uh, you know, we worked out in the bunker that entire week, ended up needing to hole out a bunker shot on 18 to make the cut, hit this beauty that lips out, and I remember walking off, not upset about the, the cut miss, because I missed plenty of them, but I was like, dude, if you're in, I, I love you being forward with me. You made me a better bunker player in three days. Like, right. let's do this thing. And, and I, I have so much respect for caddies. There's so many caddies that do. They, they walk on eggshells around their players. And totally. having the mindset to be able to go out there and be like, you know what, I want this job, but I'm going to do it my way. I've got tremendous respect for Paul in week one. Yeah, I do too. I mean, I, I, I even told Paul back in the day, I said, listen, if I'm over a shot and the wind switches, I need you to pull me off where I think a lot of caddies would be afraid to in that moment and just hope the wind doesn't get the ball. But I think as a player, it just gave me freedom to know, like, hey, I'm never doubting what he's saying. If he thinks it's three wood and I want to hit driver, he's going to tell me. But if I really want to hit driver, he's got to give me kind of the confidence that if, if he thinks it's okay, I'm going, to go, I'm going to go forward with driver. But if he really doesn't like it, then he's going to tell me. Um, and I never doubted once that Paul was holding back some of his opinions um, and I think that's what makes him great. I don't know how well you know Cameron. Is, is he going to be someone that's going to be accepting of all that? I think he will be. I think Cameron's got a, a bit more fire in him than I did in terms of the way you know he, he kind of deals with his emotions on the golf course, which I think is a good thing. Um, but already, if, if Paul's you know, kind of spoken into a situation where Cameron is hot, uh, Cameron has been super receptive to that. Um, and can kind of move on once he gets frustrated. But I think the frustration that he's shown is just coming from a place of wanting to be the best he can be and wanting to win. You know, I think we all agree, and I think the whole golfing world agrees, Cameron Young's going to win a lot of times. But I think when you're in his shoes, he's probably feeling the weight of trying to get the monkey off his back. I certainly felt it. Um, and until that day, I think he's probably going to play with some frustration. But I do think once he wins, he'll be able to breathe a little bit. Yeah, Brendan knows something about not winning on the PGA Tour. This <laughs> monkey's not top, top, top five career earnings without a win on the PGA Tour, so congrats on that. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, but so John Diani is, uh, Jonathan, uh, am I saying that right? You're Deani, saying it correct. Uh, yeah. Is on the bag, good player himself, mauls it, left-handed player. Y'all worked, RBC would have been your first week together? First week together. Uh, how's that going? Has Do you feel like you've had to kind of train him to what you like, or is he just stepping into the role for you? Um Mostly he's doing a wonderful job. I've told him, you know, he's a really high energy person and I've told him I need him like this on the course, <laughs> like no yelling. Yeah. Uh, I knew he wouldn't get down if I'm playing bad, but if, if I'm, you know, four under through six, I could have seen him getting really excited. I need him just level headed. Uh, but he's also an excellent green reader. I feel like I really need that. I've built it in my routine for now, I don't know, eight to nine years with Paul where we both read the putt. We come up with our own read. We split the read if we're different. And that's just kind of built into my DNA on the greens. And so I needed somebody who I felt confident in his ability to read greens. And he's done a great job so far. So when we're home and he comes and plays with me, we're still reading greens together out there. And so 
I need, you know, some guys don't need a friend out there. I feel like I do. I need someone I can talk to and hang out with other than being at the golf course. And um, he's provided that. And he's just going to work for the rest of the season. And, um, yeah, we didn't play great our first week, but he did a great job. I, I couldn't fault him at all. Has he picked Paul's brain at all? Oh, yeah. So he's, he's actually pretty good friends with Paul. They've talked a ton. Uh, we actually stayed. At, at one point last week in my rental house at Hilton Head, I had my former caddy, Paul, current caddy, Jonathan, and my future caddy all eating dinner together. So it was a bit awkward, uh, but also really cool that we're all friends. And um, Yeah, but Jonathan has picked Paul's brain. I think they've talked a lot more than I even know. I'm sure Jonathan has had a bunch of questions for him um, as it relates to you know how to handle me at this point or that point. And so he's done a great job. Can you tell us who your future caddy is going to be? I know who it is. Yeah. <laughs> His name's David Cook. Okay. Uh, we call him Cookie. Uh, Cookie played at NC State. First played at Purdue with Jonathan, so they have a relationship. Uh, Jonathan transferred to Elon to play golf, and Cookie transferred to NC State to play golf. And Cookie uh, played on the European Tour for a year and then has caddied on the PGA Tour now, I think close to three years. Did a long stint with Chesson Hadley. Um, and is now caddying for Adam Shank. But Cookie has loved Adam. They were teammates at Purdue, actually. Uh, but Adam loves golf and plays 30 weeks a year, and I don't think he's going to slow down. And Adam realized Cookie wanted to be home more. Uh, Cookie loves teaching. He loves helping. There's a young kid at Quail that Cookie's really gotten involved with, helping him develop as a player, and I think he wants to do that more often. And at 30 weeks a year, he knew he couldn't do that. Right. So this opportunity came. Uh, available for Cookie and I love Cookie. We've played a lot of golf together and Cookie's he does aim point. So that's checks my box of what caddies need to have. Uh, and so that'll start I think um, maybe September after Adam's season's over. Speaking of September time frame, you've played on three Ryder Cups, three President's Cups. You were an assistant captain this year at Quail Hollow or this past fall. Uh, played with, I know, Sneds a few times, Bill Haas. Like, who were your favorite guys to play with in that team format? Well, I had different favorites for different reasons. Um, Bubba's an easy favorite because of a couple things. Number one, unlike my buddy Sneds and your buddy, y'all's buddy Sneds. He's not my buddy anymore. Okay. <laughs> Ex-buddy. Ex-buddy. Well, Bubba didn't always love the three and four footers, so his speed over the years was like he, every putt was within a foot of the hole. So there's no stress playing with Bubba on the greens. Well, Sneds never saw a putt he didn't think he could make. So the one time I got paired with Sneds at Memorial, fastest greens of the year, I had four footers all day. If Sneds was five feet and he missed it, I had five feet coming back. And so I got tired of going to the bag to get my putter. So on 16, I hit first, alternate shot. I hit it in there six feet. And I reached my putter and Paul hits my hand. He's like, he's not missing this putt. I'm like, okay. So sure enough, Sneds hits it a little too hard, lips out, goes six feet by. So I start that dreaded walk again, and everybody's waiting on me. Um, but Sneds, you know, we had a great time that day, actually, because he's got a Bridgestone ball. I got my Titleist, and I hit his Bridgestone ball half a club further than my Titleist ball with my irons, and I had the evens, which are all four par threes. So anytime I got in between clubs, I would just take his Bridgestone ball, because in President's Cup, you can switch balls like that. Um, so that was fun. But Bubba was great because if you drive in the rough, he's an unbelievable rough player. He's used to being in the rough. He doesn't care. And, you know, he's, he's a laid-back partner, which I love. When Patrick Reed and I got paired together in Australia, on paper it made sense. We played the same golf ball. 
we play golf in a similar way. We see golf in a similar way, but we went 0-3 together. Um, I don't think I was good for him. He wasn't necessarily good for me. He needed somebody to tell him he's terrible and, you know, he sucks at golf. You have a little more integrity I'm than like, he hey, does as well. I'm like, hey, great shot, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Patrick and I, 0-3, that was, that was pretty painful. Yeah, I mean, I think as much as you need golf games that mesh, you need personalities that mesh as well. Yeah, right? you do. In those team events, without a doubt. Right. And, you know, even though Patrick and I had played a number of rounds together and we played well together, it's so different playing well together in a PJ Tour event because we're not partners. We're not talking about strategy and that kind of thing. Um, it was a bit of false assurance though, because our practice rounds, everything was gelling. I'm like, man, this is gonna work. And then we go out and we're just flat all week. Um, your assistant captain role at Quail Hollow, I know obviously you wanted to be on that team, but like how was that experience different after playing in six of these team events? You know, Tell me about your experience being an assistant and what your roles were. Well, speaking of roles, I had a funny moment uh, before the first round Thursday morning I'm sitting there and I realize, oh man, this is official. Like, I don't really know what to do. In the sense of, in the practice rounds, I'm just kind of filling in where caddies might need me, giving players rides here and there. Well, Thursday's official. I know there's only, uh, Davis can speak and give advice and two other captains. So two assistants can't say anything. And I'm not sure who Davis has named yet. So I basically run over to Zach. I'm like, what do I do now? And he's like, well, who have you been out in practice rounds? So he kind of gave me the rundown of my role starting Thursday morning. Um, and so I was kind of with Scotty Scheffler, Sam Burns for the week. Whatever Teddy needed, uh, whatever uh, Sam's caddy needed for the week, I'm, I'm kind of there talking to them a little bit without giving them advice. Um, but it was a role that I thought would be really fun. Um, but I didn't think I would be nervous. Come Thursday, I was pretty nervous. You know, you, you've seen the team develop and build and get better. Um, there was an amazing amount of time that Davis spent with us on the phone, Zoom calls, and talking about pairings that I knew they put a lot of work in, but I didn't know the extent uh, of the work. And then now it's game time, now it's time to go. And obviously, being a member at Quail Hollow, living in Charlotte, caring so much about the golf course and your team and wanting to win, I think it all hit me. And then, you know, Thursday morning opening ceremonies was amazing. You know, you get presidents of the United States there, you realize how big it is. And I think you just want to win so bad um, that I felt the nerves, even though I wasn't hitting a golf shot, but I loved it. I mean, I had a blast um, and, you know, it is a lot closer than I think people thought. Didn't you um, apply to be the snack mom on that team? <laughs> I, I was playing a practice round. I don't know if I told you this, but I was playing a practice round at the Seminole Pro member with Davis right after he was announced captain. And we're back on the ninth tee, nobody back there. And, and I'm, like, I'm like, I finally worked up the courage to be like, hey, Davis, uh, I'm a member at Quail. I love Charlotte. I would love to be a part of the team. I'll take out the trash in the locker room. I'll do whatever you want. And Davis thought about it for a second. And he's like, well, you know, guys like Bubba and Bryson and Patrick Reed, they, they all have particular snacks and smoothies they like to have. We always need somebody to run them out to them. And I, and I, I don't know why that personally offended me so much, but <laughs> I don't think I spoke to Davis the rest of the day. We never talked about it again. And you actually told me the week of the President's Cup, which now makes me feel stupid for not following up with Davis, but uh, you said that you were running a lot of snacks to a lot of players that week. Oh, yeah. I mean, making sandwiches, even for the caddies, whatever they needed. You know, that's, that's the starting role, I guess. 
and I, I needed to embrace it. Well, he had to take his job. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I was qualified to be the, uh, the snack mom, but let's get on. Let's get deep into Quail Hollow here. I, I would like to hear about your chip shot on the 18th hole at Olympic in 2012 to win. I, I still think that has to be, where does that rank as far as your greatest shots you've ever hit? I think it's up there with the best probably. Um, just in the sense of the moment and the lie and, you know, knowing the up and down would probably be the difference. Um, so it was one of those shots that I was, I'm trying to hit it to about eight feet so I don't run it off all the way down 40 yards off the green. And it comes out just as soon as it came out, it came out how you hope it will and went to about three feet. Was that your mindset? You were thinking, like, there's a good chance if I get this up and down that I'm going to win the U.S. Open. Yeah, I, I thought I thought it could be either playoff or win. Because you were a couple groups ahead, right? Yeah, I was I was two groups ahead, I, I believe. Um, and I knew, I mean, 17's a reachable par five. And yeah. new 18, you know, it's a tough short hole, but still a wedge in. Um, but I look at leaderboards now, and I have most of my career, but at that point I wasn't looking at leaderboards, but you, you could kind of feel the moment that you were right there. And um, I didn't think it was that tricky even up and down until I go look. And, and honestly, where I got nervous was if I hit this long and left of the hole, there was this sliver of a walkway. And y'all know how firm walkways get. It, it would have gone 40 yards off the green. And, um, and that's why I'm like, okay, you have to aim this right. Make bogey at worst, but at least give yourself an 8 to 10 footer. And that's kind of that's what I was thinking walking into it. But the chip came out. Perfect, and it went to three and a half feet, and I had a little left edger, and yeah, I was definitely very nervous. Uh, but when it went in, there was a big sigh of relief, and um, honestly, waiting for Jim Furyk and Graham McDowell, I just didn't want to play 18 more holes the next day. So that was that was up there with, uh, man, part of the reason I wanted them not to make birdie. <laughs> and uh, do you get 10 years exempt into the U.S. 10 Open? years. So do you have to go to sectionals this year? I do. Where are you going? So I'm signed up for Toronto. Okay. Yeah, which like, is the Monday of the RBC Canadian Open. So you'll obviously be playing in Canada that I'll be week. playing in Canada. Nice. Yeah. So go out to sectionals, try to get in again, because I love LACC. Oh, I've played there a few times. It's going to be a crazy. It's going to be a really cool U.S. Uh, Open. Uh, no doubt. And you used to spend some time before the, I guess, before Hawaii, kind of yep. in the wintertime. You all used to spend some of your winter in L.A., right? In L.A., and that's why I got to play this year with a couple members. Um and we didn't play all the way back because uh, some of these par fours are 520. And that day we played was about 58 degrees. So it's going to be uh, a unique looking U.S. Open. I think for the viewers who don't know anything about LACC, not a ton of trees, pretty open. Almost might resemble Oakmont in a sense of the way it looks on TV. Uh, a lot of hills, a lot of undulation for L.A. So uh, it's going to be a, a good spot. Yeah, no doubt about it. Right, I want to go back just a little bit. You talked about making a, a difficult putt to win the U.S. Open. Obviously, at the time, you were allowed anchoring, right? Yep. What was your initial mindset come 2016 when the USGA comes out with this bombshell that mm -hmm. anchoring's going away? My whole thing the whole time was if it's a if it's a sure problem, then more top 20 putters on the PGA Tour would be using it. And I just thought, it was a combination and domino effect in that Keegan Bradley won the PJ Championship in 11. I won the U.S. Open in 12. Ernie Els won the Open Championship in 12. And then uh, Adam Scott won the Masters in 13. So essentially four majors almost back-to-back -back with 
four guys who anchored the putter. And so I think the USGA reacted pretty, uh, NRA re re reacted pretty quickly and strongly saying, we think this is going to be a problem in the future. I don't think it would have remained a problem. But um, I tell people, it's funny, I went through two kind of the dark years of my career with putting where I was one of the worst putters on the PGA Tour statistically, like 180 to 200 with the short putter. But then I played enough golf with Matt Kuchar who uses the arm lock method and he did it, he putted great. So I'm like, I'm gonna try that. And 2018, I finished the season fifth in putting and I don't think I ever would have touched that with the belly putter. So it's like, it was a good example for me of like, okay, they changed the rule. At first it hurt me, but it ended up making me, I think a better putter than I would have been with the belly putter. So I guess looking back, I am thankful they changed it, but I still didn't think there was enough evidence there for them to need to change it. I remember sitting at lunch at an event with Brian Harmon and your name came up when, right when they'd made this ban. And Harmon looked at me and he said, you could put anything in Webb's hands. He's gonna figure out how to get it in the hole. I, I thought that was a That's huge nice compliment. Yeah, he yeah. did. He said, you could put anything in Webb's hands. He's gonna figure out how to get in the hole quicker than most. Well, it's, it's funny because as a kid, you care a lot about what you look like when you putt or what putter you use. And I mean, I, I remember using Scotty Cameron's just because they look good, yeah. not because I made putts with them. But I got, I got to putting so bad with the short putter so poorly that I remember saying to my caddy Paul, I'm like, hey, I will use a shovel. I just need to get the ball in the hole. It doesn't matter. So in fact, it was 2016 here at the Wells Fargo, played Friday, uh, Thursday, Friday, missed a cut, and Saturday, no golf course access for me at Quail as a missed cut, so I went to Charlotte Country Club with the arm lock putter. Um, just wanted to go putt some immediately to see if it was better, and it was better. And then what really changed things for me is Tim Clark came and looked at my putting at the Players' Championship and asked me, have I ever considered using the claw? And I said no, and I tried it, and felt pretty weird at first, but I was making everything with it, and I stuck with it, and still use the claw to this day. So I still probably have the most unique putting method on the tour, arm lock with the claw, um, but at least my putting's become more consistent in the last few years. So what most traditional putters have about three to four degrees of loft. When you have that arm lock, you've got to add a bunch of loft to yep. it. So what is the loft on your putter currently? Six and a half. Okay. Yep, and it's about 42 inches okay. in length. So, you know, there's rumblings that they should make this method illegal, and sure, it is anchored against my arm, but hopefully with Jason Gore, you know, his role at the USGA, and now he's with the PGA Tour, hopefully those things won't, you know, be that spur of the moment. Uh, although I say that and I'm thinking about the, the rollback and I don't know if we we're going to get into that today, but that's a whole nother topic. You want to get into it? Um, I, all I'll say is I hope we don't roll things back. Um, I think it'd be, I think it'd be a big mistake. It, it's going to cost manufacturers a ton of money, ton of, ton of time and R&D that they could spend trying to make their own products better right now. Um, I think there's been some interesting studies to show that it actually benefits the longer hitters. Uh, not the shorter hitters or medium length hitters. Um, and I think the bigger problem uh, is more in golf course design and not technology, so. Yeah, you look at a golf course like Valspar there at Innisbrook, Copperhead, and it, you know, have tree-lined fairways with rough, have right. better place bunkers. I mean, I think we're about to dive into some Wells Fargo and Quail Hollow, and it is more of the just keep building it longer and longer and keep pushing the bunkers out further and, you know, 
guys are still covering that bunker on 16. I know right. you've believed that we needed to add another bunker or flip that yep. bunker over. And it's just, it's a never ending process. And guys are, it's like when we got rid of the square grooves and wedges, players are going to learn how to spin the wedges correctly, no matter what grooves are in it. Manufacturers Correct. are good enough at making V groove wedges spin like the old ones did. So I, I just, it's, I do wish there was something that could be done to bring these old school courses mm -hmm. back in. But I, I agree with you. I think we were rookies on tour. We had rough every week. And now you look at the Mexico Open this week, there's, you know, you'd rather be in the rough. It, it sits up higher. So. Yep. Yeah. And, it, you know, I was at Quail yesterday and uh, we caught number uh, seven, the par five downwind. And, you know, Wells Fargo week, the fairways are firm. You know, it's probably the best. It's probably what the Quail Hollow Club during the tournament is probably the best uh, in shape club of the year. Therefore, we're going to get 30, 40 yards of roll unless we get a lot of rain. And you get Cameron Young or Rory McIlroy downwind on seven, they're probably going to hit a wedge or nine iron in. And I think the public or even the TV announcers, not you, Johnson, um, but their immediate reaction is this hole is too short. Um, when I, I don't think that's always the answer. Um, seven, we don't have a whole lot of room there to make it longer. Go back but, into your house. <laughs> yeah, you can make a little dog leg right. Um, but yeah, I just I would love to see a little more creativity on the design side of how, how are we gonna make this hole harder without making it longer? And I think there's plenty of options. Um, we even looked at yesterday on number um, number nine at Quail. I mean, it's what, 490 yards. And I get there and I was with Paul yesterday and I said, isn't it amazing that these bombers will hit cuts on this hole? You know, they teed up on the right side, they hit cuts, but if you move the tee six yards left, we kind of walked over there and they have to draw it. And so they're gonna be more three woods. So little things like that are so easy to do. Um, kind of like, like the angle on two. I know downwind, some of those bombers can probably hit cuts and cover that corner, but I think two is a perfect example yep. with that tee back more into the left, forcing guys to hit three wood out down the, down the right side and come in with a seven iron, eight iron, like that green's designed to be Correct. hit from. And if they do hit driver, they have to draw it, which modern technology is harder to do, and it takes more skill to draw a driver. So, yeah, it's a great example. Have you ever stood on the ninth tee at Quail and seen a cut shot there? <laughs> I, I, I don't think I've stood on any tee box in my life and seen a cut shot, Brendan. <laughs> uh, but so getting to the Wells Fargo, I've got so many questions for you. Obviously, you have an intimate knowledge of Quail Hollow Club. What, what are some of your favorite things about the club and specifically Wells Fargo Week? Mm. One of my favorite things about the club is uh, it is first and foremost a golf club. Um, it is a very fun club to be a part of. Tons of fun things socially, but um, when it comes to golf, you know, there's not a ton of members. You there's no tee times. You play when you want. You play with the size of the group you want as long as you play fast which I love. Um, it's nice knowing that the fastest round of golf in town is at Quail Hollow, especially on a Saturday at 12 o'clock, you're going to play in under four hours. Um, but as a professional, it's an amazing practice facility. And like I said, with, with the lower membership, the opportunities for me to go out on the golf course whenever I want, hit shots, tough holes, obviously green mile go out and it's as tough as you want to make it. I love being there. I think it's helped me tremendously as a player get better. Um, but you know, it has been tricky over the years to be a member of Quail and play in the Wells Fargo because the golf course is a little different than you and I typically see it. So I'm learning even every year, okay, this line's a little different this hole or this green releases a lot more than it normally does. 
so that's stuff I'm, I'm logging away in my brain even week of the tournament. You guys have got such a cool locker room there as well, Quail. I mean, what, what a place to hang out for a couple hours, as you, as you know. Well, I think Webb and I maybe have different philosophies about hanging out in the locker room, but we're getting him in there more. He's, yeah. starting, to, he's starting to give in. He's getting older. He realizes the hang is pretty darn if good. If you walk in there and see him at a table, do you just go to the other corner if no, you can? No, he's a good hang. He, his table's a good table. Now, I'm not as bold as him and Harold Varner at sitting at the table of knowledge yet. You know, they'll sit right down, which I probably need to do, but I'm still a little afraid. I feel like a little kid, like I shouldn't sit down there. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, the table of knowledge is the big circular table right in the middle. It's where Johnny Harris sits. And, uh, you know, I, I love hanging out with the Moes. I consider myself a Mo, and that's the older the older group of guys that play pretty much every day. And th those, are, those are for sure my people. And speaking of Johnny Harris, there's been a lot of changes to the golf course since you and I have both been members out there. Like, I'm of the opinion Johnny's done a great job bringing championship golf to mm -hmm. Charlotte and, and all the changes are to, are to make it a better venue. But what are, what are some of your thoughts and what are your, some of your favorite changes to the club and least favorite changes to the club in your time here in Charlotte? Yeah, you know, um, I used to really love the opening two holes at Quail. I thought one's a great par four. Not hard, but not easy. Two's perfect par three, eight iron to six iron. Great intro to the golf course. And now it's completely different. Uh, it's whatever, 510-yard par four. Um, but when I understood what he wanted to do for the President's Cup for the first tee, the horseshoe kind of uh, hospitality suites on the ground level, big grandstands, I understood it. Um, doesn't mean I, doesn't miss, I don't miss the old start, but I understand it now. It is a beautiful-looking tee shot. Um, and 16, I love the old 16th hole. But standing there for the approach shot now, I feel like is an amazing looking approach shot. Um, and to incorporate the green mile, the hospitality, what they're able to do. I think, like you said, getting older, kind of see golf as, you know, the whole, whole viewership of, man, we got to give these guys a great golf course. We got to provide financial opportunity for the club, for the town. I get it. I know there's, there's things they, that Johnny has to do. Um, but I love quail. I miss a couple of the old holes, yes, but um, I guess for lack of uh, more thoughts, I, I love the golf course still. Uh, it's, it's definitely gotten harder. Um, we used to have bent greens, now we have Bermuda, so they're a lot more firm in the golf tournament. Right now, we're not even making ball marks out there. Um, and so that's why over the years, some years, nine under, 10 under wins. Um, but yeah, it is very hard. I think every year, Quail Hollow greens are the top three hardest to putt greens on the PJ Tour, which I get it. I still don't know how to read them. Um, hopefully Jonathan does. Uh, but, yeah, I'm excited for next week. I, I'm with, I absolutely love the old 16th. I thought that was such a cool hole um, along with 12. I thought those were the two best tee shots on the golf course. I was really sad to see that go. I want to get your, your opinions on that because that's close to you, I know. Yeah, I think, I mean, 12 is still pretty much the same. Green was softened a little bit when we went to Bermuda, and I absolutely love having Bermuda greens at Quail Hollow. We, you know, you walk through the locker room and see the old paintings, and we used to have a lot more trees out there. Obviously, the Bermuda grass needs more, more air and more sunlight. Um, but 16, the old 16, <laughs> was one of the best holes on the PGA Tour. But... Uh, when I was at the President's Cup, I, I was sitting on that hillside watching the new 16th green, the hillside that goes up to the 17th tee, and the atmosphere, the amphitheater that it created, I don't think anybody can argue that 16's a better golf hole now, but mm -hmm. from, a, from a viewer's tournament perspective, mm -hmm. I, I think 
the new 16 is a home run. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just wish I could hit it about 310 in the air because that fairway would be twice as wide. I played with Phil on Sunday a few years back, and, and he hit this big high cut, carried the bunker, had a flip wedge in. I hit the best tee shot of my life. <laughs> squeezed it right by I the bunker. Squeezed it right, it was downwind, squeezed it right by the bunker, and I was still through the fairway in the left rough and had to hit this big hooking eight iron into the green. But yeah, there's just some tee shots out there that maybe favor the long hitter a little bit. But you know, we love Roy McElroy around Quail Hollow, so whatever we can do to get him. Exactly. <laughs> You've had a couple good finishes there. You've had a bit of a mixed bag. I know you finished yep. second in 15. Was mm -hmm. it fourth in 2012? Like, what is it like playing at your home course and, and having success like that? It's really fun. I mean, this is, you know, you're out there, you see your friends, you see family, you also see members. And it's fun to see, you know, the members you see every day while you're practicing are out there rooting you on, which is really fun. Um, but yeah, I, I wish I've had more opportunities to win there. The, my, my best year there, like you said, in 15 was, um, I thought on Saturday when I eagled 15, I was probably two or three ahead, and I think I was like four back, because that was the day McElroy, I think, shot some 10 under. Um, but he obviously loves the golf course. He's the guy to beat every year there. Um, but it'd be a dream to win at home. You know, it, it would feel, I think, that's like a, a major in its own category in my mind to win at, at your home event uh, would be really special. Do you feel an added pressure going into that week? I Obviously, do. You do? I do. I feel an added pressure, but I think at first it was like a negative added pressure. Like I had this weight on me that I, I should play well at my home course. But now I feel more of like I, I want to play well just for me, um, not for anyone else, not for, you know, Charlotte or not for the club. I want to play well for me. and. Um, so I feel like I've handled it a little better, but it's interesting. I haven't played a Wells Fargo at Quail since 2019 because we had COVID in 20 and I got hurt in 21. And obviously last year was up at, uh, up in DC. So it's, you know, it's four years running. I hadn't played. Did, did you feel an added pressure playing? Absolutely. I know you did as well. I mean, yeah. we, you know, you, my in-laws would always come in. You've got t more ticket requests than you usually do. It's you just seem busier. It makes me wonder, like how these guys, like McElroy and Scheffler, with all their media obligations mm -hmm. and everything they do on a given week, they must just have such incredibly structured schedules. Which is one of the things I've always been impressed about you with your practice regimen. You, you know, I see you out there all the time. I'm like, hey Webb, let's go play nine holes. And I don't know if it's that you're just that regimented or you just don't like playing with me. <laughs> I know what it is. <laughs> I know exactly what it is. <laughs> but, but you have you have that sort of uh, work ethic built in, which I know is, is a big reason why you've been so successful. Yeah, and uh, five kids is busy. So between practices and this and that, I got to get my, my practice in and be done. What's your favorite hole at Quahala? Uh, favorite hole is seven, not because I live there. Uh, it was my favorite hole before I lived there, but I think it's the it's like a perfect risk reward par five. You know, the tee ball is not particularly that hard, but there's water if you push it. Uh, you hit a good drive, you get rewarded, you go for the green pretty much every time. Um, the green's got this massive bowl front right, so when they do put the pin down there and you're in the fairway, you're thinking you're going to have a, a good chance for eagle. Um, I think it's a per I think every par five, in my opinion, should be reachable, and every par five should have some risk reward in it. And seven has that, and um, I've always loved it. As as golfers, we're typically creatures of habit. So you, now you've got a home week at Wells. Are you trying to treat that the same way you'll treat every week when you're on the road, or while you're at home, you're trying to help out as much as you possibly can? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I think the more I treat it like a normal tournament, the better off I'll be. Um, you know, I still might run carpool that. I'm not doing it a normal or at a different tournament, uh, but I, you know, that'll just help kind of put the week in perspective for me a little bit. 
Uh, but it will be busy. Like you said, Johnson, I got sister's mom coming to town. Um, but they understand now, 15 years in, that yeah. this is a work week. I can't be hanging out at night. I'm going to bed early. So I want to know your favorite hole, though, Johnson. Uh, it's between 7 and 14. I, I, I don't think I've ever laid up on 14, even in the wintertime back <laughs> into the wind. I'm still thinking I can get it there. But I, I love when the wind switches kind of early May, for, right around the time, April this year, and 14 starts playing downwind every yep. day. I just think it is one of the best drivable par fours on the PGA Tour because you know, 10 at Riviera, I love 15 at, in Hartford, but 14 at Quail, if you hit the right shot shape, you can make an eagle. You can yeah. you can hit it close to a front left hole location. I have had a tap in for eagle in the wells before. Well, I mean, I've made my share of doubles and triples there too, but I just think a good drivable par four at that location on the yeah. golf course. You got a fave? I love 12. I do, especially, I mean, I love that you back there kind of by yourself with that tee shot and, yep. and just the, the shape of that tee, I think is awesome. And now on 12 tee, I love, you can see all the way through to 13 yeah. green. It's yeah. a pretty cool tee shot. Yeah, I'm normally, I don't like it when they remove trees from golf courses, but I think they've done such a good job out there as Webb says, we can see all the way through mm -hmm. now. And left of 12, when Keith Wood, our superintendent, came from Sedgefield, it was all it used to be, there was one other big tree and it used to be all pine straw. Mm -hmm. And now Keith, going leading into the 17 PGA, said, I'm taking this tree out, no more pine. There's a couple spots of pine yeah. straw, but we've been able to grow rough over there, making it a much more difficult shot from my office left of the 12th fairway. <laughs> <laughs> At least it gives you the opportunity where you can run it up from that left side, though. For sure, and, and my, one of my favorite spots out there is my favorite hole, 14 tee from the front edge of the, of the back tee. Um, you can see every single hole in the back nine, which I love having, to your point, tree removal brings in these vistas and you can see all the way up mm -hmm. to the clubhouse and 18th green, one of my favorite spots to stand. Yeah, Charlotte Market, I think, is one of the greatest, if not the greatest markets we go to for golf fans. The, the city loves it, supports it. Um, amazing turnout every year. and. No surprise, it's one of the players' favorite tournaments every year. Yeah, you get out there on a Tuesday. Most weeks on a Tuesday, there's no spectators. You show up on a, in a Monday Pro-Am, you're signing autographs. And on a Wednesday Pro-Am, as I know we all know, it's we used to play in threesomes, so it played fast. But between every green and tee, it's kids being out of school, and it's just got, yep. it's got such a great vibe. And I remember a lot of times I'm be complaining about how many autographs I had to sign on a Wednesday Pro-Am, and that's one of those things I regret saying now because I would give anything to be signing autographs in a Wednesday Pro-Am. Should we play some Hammer? Yeah, let's play some Hammer. This is our little closing segment here. You want to lead us off tonight? All right. A few years ago, you hired a trainer. You wanted to get stronger. Yeah. You realized where golf was going, distance was really important. Mm -hmm. You've uh, you got a nice gym at your house. There's one piece of equipment that apparently you don't really agree with or get on real well with. Um, <laughs> I heard from this trainer that you might have kicked this a couple times, slapped it. I think his words were you acted like a 10-year-old little girl. <laughs> Ex explain to us about, this, to about, <laughs> about this piece of equipment. Well, I don't even know what it's called, but you get in there, you put your feet in and kind of hook your ankles in and you're kind of holding your weight up with your lower core and you, you're dipping down and dipping up to work on your lower core and your lower back. Well, every time I would get in there, my hamstrings felt like they would catch on fire and I hated it. And he always wanted me to keep doing it and work on my lower core. He kept telling me my lower core is weak. I need, you know, to hit it further, you gotta have a stronger lower core. And I kept asking him, is there any other exercise we can do, anything? I hate this. And he's like, no, we gotta do this. And I think he found it amusing, even though he kept a straight face. So finally one day he wanted me to, 
rep it out as many as I could. And by the end, my legs felt like they were so on fire that I did stand up and I, I had like a little tantrum. I started slapping it and told him I hated it. It looked like, you know, a little five-year-old kid. Yeah. So it's still in there. But he, he has been on the road two weeks. So now that you say that, it'd be a good time if I was going to get rid of it. Right. I was telling it broke or something. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Someone stole it. Right. Your college teammates describe you as a bit of a goofball when you were traveling through the airport, like pulling all sorts of sort of weird things. What what, what were you doing? You were, everybody in the airport's looking at you like you're crazy, but your golf team, your coach, Jerry Haas, they just thought you were hilarious. What, yeah. What, what, what kind of things were you I did you have a goofy streak in me, so. Um, and now looking back, it gives me just tremendous anxiety even thinking that I used to do this. But my teammates would laugh, and I'd pull my pants up as high as I could go, kind of right here under my chest, tighten my belt, um, borrow one of my teammates' pair of glasses, kind of bring my hat down, flatten the bill, and then I would go stand in front of, uh, you know, the departure signs. All these people are trying to figure out where their gate is, and I'd just go stand in front of them, you know, looking at it, and all these people would be looking at me like, who is this guy? What's his deal? And my teammates would be back in the corner laughing. Uh, I used to stand up in the aisle on, on flights and start stretching, um, you know, all these goofy stretches, and everyone around me is concerned, like, what is he doing? Where my teammates are just, they're rolling over laughing. But now I could, I, I could never do that. Um, it'd have to be a lot of money. It'd, I'd have to, it'd have, there'd have to be a good incentive for me to do that it, kind of it was, stuff. It was described as a bit of a Steve Urkel from Family right. Matters yeah, sort of sketch. You did, you have the, did you have the voice? I mean, <laughs> No, no, no. <laughs> I couldn't talk like him. It was more of the show. Johnson always used to uh, walk down the jet bridge and fall on purpose and kind of roll into the people that are lining up to get on the plane. There'd always be some sweet old lady that's like concerned oh, yeah. that he's hurt himself. Oh, we would have got along well. It got, it got a ride. I think Brendan was the only one that didn't think it was particularly funny. I think Maybe. I kicked him a few times when I walked by. <laughs> that sounds about right. We would have gotten along. Yeah. All right, you have become somewhat of a uh, coffee connoisseur, maybe even a coffee snob from yeah. what I've heard. Yeah travel with a complete kit mm -hmm. so will you get to an airport clear out a desk and start brewing your coffee right there i will that's yeah. awful right now my wife tells me and other people tell me that that should embarrass me but it doesn't um but yeah i have my kettle my grinder my scale and my coffee beans and i'll sit right there in front of a bunch of people and, and make my coffee do you ever pour free cups to people walking no, by? No, some people come and joke like they want one. I'm like, all right, if you really want one, it's going to take me about five minutes, and they just keep going. Is it a French press? No, it's a, it's, there's this um, filter you put in, and you put the, the grounds in there, and you pour hot water over it. So they call it, that's why they call it the pour over. Um, but, I, yeah, I'll make one and take it on the plane with me. Nice. You know, some people, some people think it's too much work, but... What it gives me, I'm willing to put into the work. And do you travel with like a Yeti mug or something? What do you? Yeah, okay. I put it in a mug and then actually have an Ember mug, which Ember keeps the coffee hot for an hour. So I put it in the Yeti and then on the plane so I don't spill it, I pour it into my Ember mug. Is it true that you might have tripped something in London Heathrow one time? I did. Man, y'all do some good background work. We were sitting waiting for our bags, and um, it was it was the baggage issue this summer, so they lost our bags, uh, and we're waiting at Heathrow, and I want to make a coffee, and I go to plug in uh, my kettle, 
and I guess the power didn't work out well because this whole line, about 20 feet of everybody's phones quit charging. So I think I fried something <laughs> in that airport. But thankfully, no, it wasn't loud. But I see all these people start looking, they're replugging in. And I walk over to Paul and I said, I think I just fried the whole thing. Uh, that's awesome. Taking it to a whole new level. Yeah. All right. Sorry about this. Uh, you have a two and five career playoff record on the PGA Tour. Zero oh and one on the Corn Ferry Tour. Like, <laughs> it's such a shame. Brendan couldn't get into a playoff. If, you, if I ever wanted to win an event, why, why, why are you, you so bad in playoffs? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, I didn't really think about it until I realized, man, I've lost like every playoff. I, maybe I should learn from this. Um, I think I, I got so relaxed in playoffs. Like regulation. For some reason, I'm still in the moment, and then playoff comes, and I felt this like, okay, the tournament's over. It's just me and another guy. So I almost felt relaxed in a negative way. I felt like if I felt more nervous and more um, more into it, I think it would have helped. Uh, but that's the only thing I could put my finger on. I remember my sports psychologist said, we got to figure this out. Like, what do you think it is? And I'm like, this is the only thing I can come up with. Maybe the, the tournament's essentially over for everyone else, um, but yeah, that, that is a pretty crappy record. What's uh, what's your playoff record? Uh, one and one beat Spencer Levine in Mexico, where he basically handed it to me, and then I was in a two-hole playoff with Spieth and JB Holmes in Houston, and I was waiting for somebody to hand it to me. I was actually on a plane with Noda Begay the next day, and explaining like I, my second playoff. I thought you know I thought somebody was going to make a mistake, and he's like, playoff rule number one: you go out, you go out, and you get it. You go out and you take it on the first hole with the birdie, and if you don't, you lose, so be it. But you have to have that mindset. How about you, big dog? I know it's got a zero to start. <laughs> I'm 0-2. I obviously never played off against him. But, uh, yeah, I'm 0-2. What were those? Um, RSM against was who? one. Robert Streb. Okay. And then um, Scott Piercy beat me in Scranton in a Corn Ferry event. Okay. 0 and I two. played in that. That, was that 08? Yep. Yeah, I was there. You went in Alpha. I was 24th, and I, why I remember that is on Corn Ferry, top 25 gets you the next week. Well, uh -huh. the next week I think was Utah, and so I was pretty pretty nervous there on that last hole, knowing i got to come out and Monday qualify if I don't par this last hole. So I got my 24th, which probably felt as good as your second that week. <laughs> probably. <laughs> um, one final one. Do you think the hardest part of caddying for you is trying to figure out what head cover goes on which hybrid? <laughs> it must be. I mean, I have, I think, seven head covers in my bag right now. Um, Paul, he got it wrong tons over the years. Um, but yeah, I'm, I mean, I asked Titleist to make me a five hybrid and they laughed and they didn't think I was serious and I was serious. I was dead serious. I need all the help I can get with those long clubs. Uh, but yeah, it's a pretty... It, it, it's a pretty colorful bag. You got anything else? No, I, that's it. Webb, thank you so much for Thanks, joining Johnson. us. You're the Thanks, man. Yeah, Good thank luck you very you. much. Really yeah. appreciate you appreciate coming it. on. A lot of fun. <laughs>